Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you today and to join around some good old songs and one or two good old new songs. Good old new songs, just good new songs, yes. Uh, thank you to our music team for putting that together for us. And I invite you to take your copy of God's Word out, start turning, if you would, over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, we begin this morning, I think it's no secret that it's hard to figure out lately how to navigate through all of these brand new landmines that are littering our world's landscape, how to get around pronouns, how to navigate whether you should attend the implicit bias class at work that you're supposed to take, uh, the endless celebrations we're all supposed to participate, participate in, the, in, in the abomination of the week. Should we boycott this or raise a ruckus about that or just live and let live? And all of that's just even the stuff out in the world, let alone all the difficult decisions that we're navigating in our own lives. It's getting more confusing, it seems, all the time to sort of figure out what are all the rules I'm supposed to be following, right? I was talking to someone even recently who just said it'd be really nice if God just gave us a postcard that just listed out all the things I was supposed to be doing. So I just knew. And that would be nice, wouldn't it? Uh, if God just sort of came to your mailbox and he's like, here's the 50 rules you need to follow today, dun, 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 and then you'll be good to go. But I, I think our passage this morning is going to actually help us maybe to view life from a different perspective that may be very simplifying and very clarifying. Because our text today is going to encourage us not to try to figure out all the rules of life, all the different uh, specific guidelines that we're supposed to be following so we don't ever make any mistakes. It's instead going to say, here's not all the rules, but here are the guiding principles of life. And there are really very few that you need to keep in mind that if you pay attention to these principles, you will be able to navigate all the complexities of life. I was uh, fascinated. I saw just recently uh, a, a woodworker, a, a fine uh, woodworking craftsman who was wading into the endless debate of metric or imperial when it came to measurements. Uh, he lived in a country that used metric. He had spent some time studying in the States where they used imperial and he's like, you know, I'm not trying to start a war, which is how everybody on the Internet starts a war, right? But he made an interesting observation. He said one of the reasons why the imperial system in particular has, you know, feet, inches, all that stuff, has lasted in fine woodworking is because fine woodworkers actually very rarely use tape measures and rulers. That's not how they build. They use ratios. They use basic guidelines. They, they find some, some part of their project that is going to now be the reference piece, and then everything else is just a ratio in reference to that piece. And so using just a simple wing divider and some cleverness, you can follow basic principles, basic ratios, and you can create incredibly intricate, fine furniture with a shocking amount of simplicity. And he explained then why base 12 is nice for that because it breaks down neatly into whole numbers. You can do your halves and your thirds and your quarters and your fifths and you don't ever have to use decimals. And so I, I, I thought, you know, I think there's a bit of wisdom there that, that Paul is applying to our, our spiritual life. And that sometimes we get so caught up on trying to figure out how to read our tape measures and trying to figure out how to keep all the numbers in our head that... We forget sometimes God is saying, hey, look, let me, 
let me help you see what's the reference piece and then the principles by which you can compare your life to that reference piece. And that's how I want you to navigate the intricacies of your life. And so in our text, I think Paul shows us how to do just that, in particular applying to the the question of meat sacrifice to idols, but as we're going to see, a principle that applies to every question of life. If you've got your copy of God's Word now, turn to 1 Corinthians 10. I'd invite you to stand as we read this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 23, and we'll read down to the first verse of chapter 11. Paul writes this, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we come this morning to familiar words that tie together what we've been studying for some time now. I pray that you would use this passage this morning to help pull together in our mind the themes and the truths that have connected Paul's argument all the way back from chapter 8, and so that we would be able to walk from here today, not only uh, with these words on our mind, but also with confidence in all the truth that we've learned, that we can go out and we can approach difficult questions in our lives with, with the knowledge that we are ready to honor you in those things. We desire to be obedient children who do look like our Savior, and we confess that often it is confusing to know how we are to do that. And so, Lord, open our eyes to give us understanding and Continue, Lord, through your spirit to shape us into that image for which you have redeemed us. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's probably no secret what the heart of our discussion this morning is. You can see on your notes it's titled, The Christian's Controlling Consideration. What is that one thought that the Christian is always to have in mind that controls the decisions they make? And it's from that famous verse in chapter 10, verse 31 there, that we are to do everything to the glory of God. And then along with that, Paul sort of says, if that's our big purpose, let me simplify it down to one more practical principle, and that is when you're dealing with people and relationships, you can automatically figure out how to glorify God in that situation by asking, how do I further the purposes of the gospel in this situation? And so that's going to sort of be the heart of our message this morning, but he's going to get a running start at that coming here in verse 23 by helping us remember that being lawful is not enough. Being lawful is not enough. If you're taking notes, that's our first point this morning. In verse 23, Paul begins by saying, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. 
all things are lawful, but not all things edify. And so he has this twice repeated phrase, all things are lawful. And it's quite likely that this is a phrase that he's not writing as an original thought to Corinth there, but it's probably something that is a problem in Corinth. It's become a mantra, a phrase of those who have been arguing for the unlimited and unrestricted use of Christian liberty. In fact, it's possible even that it's something that they picked up on from Paul and then took it and used it in a way that he didn't intend when he was there in Corinth and laying out the good news of the gospel and the new covenant realities in Christ and how in Christ we have freedoms and you can eat bacon and these sorts of things. It's likely that there was those in Corinth that said, all things are lawful, all things are lawful, and they just ran with it. And now they're using that as an excuse for all kinds of selfish uses for their personal liberties. And Paul jumps into this and he says, hey, all things may be lawful, but that's not the whole picture. That's not the only thing that matters to a Christian when it comes to, should I be doing this? And so he gives those two correctives. All things are lawful, sure, but not everything is profitable. Not everything is an advantage to do. Not everything is going to, and that word literally means like to bring things together, to hold it together. It sounds similar to our English word for symphony. Not everything is going to like actually make the situation better just because it's legal. All things are profitable, they say. And Paul says, sure, but that doesn't mean everything will edify, to build up as in a house, to improve something's ability to function maturely. He says, Yes, okay, something may be lawful, but that doesn't mean it's what's going to make for this family to work the way it's supposed to work. In doing this, he's not actually challenging their initial statement. Notice that. Paul's not saying, actually, guys, technically, there's a rule. You forgot paragraph 9, subsection C, which clearly applies in this situation. He's, he's saying, no, your problem isn't whether or not you read the rule book. The problem is if you understood what the point of the game is. You don't understand the principles that should be guiding your life because all you're focused on is what can I technically get away with. He's not challenging the thought that all things are lawful when it comes to this issue. He's affirming that, but he's pointing out the limitations of using that as a mantra to guide life. And I think you can kind of imagine a scenario. Let's take a, like an office that hires a new employee and they say, okay, here's your little cubicle in your office. We'll see you tomorrow. And the next day, everyone starts showing up to work and are surprised to arrive to find music blaring from a loud boombox. There's disco lights dancing on the ceiling. There's the smell of some kind of strong food coming from a toaster oven and there's this little haze of one of those little fragrance makers kind of wafting over the top of the other cubicles. And you wouldn't be surprised if the floor manager walks up to this new employee in this cubicle and just says, what are you doing? And if the employee responds simply with, hey, I read the entire employee manual last night and it turns out all of this is technically lawful. Do you think the manager would go, oh, my bad? Right? After pulling the plug on that boombox so that he could hear clearly, the manager would probably explain that employees are expected to not only understand the rules, but to understand the purpose of the business and to act accordingly. And most likely that employee would be given just enough time to pack up their things and then be escorted permanently from the premises. I think sometimes Christians seem to act like 
the faith is just this place that we get into through Christ and then we can live our lives however we selfishly want to as long as we remain technically lawful. And we can act as though we aren't by virtue of being a Christian now on a mission representing a kingdom and a king and that we need to govern our lives by whatever reflects well on him and his business. And so simply put, Paul is teaching the Corinthians that running around declaring, I can, I can, I can, is not enough unless they can also declare, and I should, and I should. A couple quick lessons here before we move on. And first is this, laws are the fences, but they're not the focus. Laws are the fences, but not the focus. The laws of God define boundaries that we cannot cross, but they do not necessarily then tell us what we should do. And so when God says, thou shalt not, we say, okay, it will never be a good idea for me to go outside of that boundary. There will never be anything that is in the will of God that lies on the other side of that fence. And so when we, when we think about the will of God and we think about living it out in our lives, we want to know the commands of God because that puts fences around our decisions, our thoughts, our behaviors. And it says, you cannot ever go out there and honor me. But it does not then mean necessarily that just because you're inside the fence, you are being what God wants you to be in any given situation or circumstance. The goal of the Christian life is not just to stay inside the fences. The goal of the Christian life, as we're going to see, is to glorify God in every situation the best that we can. And sometimes that means I stay inside the fences in this corner of the field, and sometimes that means I stay inside the fences in that corner of the field. I can maneuver in that entire realm of Christian freedom, but where I'm standing should never be determined by where I'm selfishly comfortable, but by where God is most glorified. And so as Christians, we want to learn to live a life that's not focused on, am I inside the fence? Am I inside the fence? Am I inside the fence? But that our focus is, all, is within the realm of Christian freedom. Am I glorifying God here? Am I glorifying God here? Am I glorifying God here? Secondly, Freedoms are for God's mission. God's mission isn't for our freedoms. And this is maybe another way of saying almost the same thing. God did not give us Christian freedoms as the purpose of the gospel. The, the point of, of Jesus coming and dying for us was not primarily so that God could say, great, now you can go do whatever you want. That's why I came and died for you. Jesus did not come with the good news of now you can live a selfish life. The purpose of God giving us so much freedom in Christ is so that now we who have been bought by Jesus Christ can have the freedom to glorify Him in all kinds of different ways, in all kinds of different contexts that He would place us in. And so not viewing our freedoms as rights to be demanded, but instead to view our freedoms as opportunities to be employed on a mission. And what does living out that mission then look like practically? Well, that's where we can tune in now as Paul finally gets down to the brass tacks answer to the question that the Corinthians had raised and that he's been addressing all the way since chapter 8, verse 1. In chapter 10, verse 24 to 28, we see this, let conscience be our guide. Now notice, I'm not plagiarizing Jiminy Cricket because Jiminy Cricket was wrong. Don't always let your conscience be your guide. Paul's going to actually clarify that. 
But do let conscience be our guide in how we navigate these types of situations. And as I said, Paul is ready now to finally answer their original question with specific instruction. And he's been giving us all the principles for this. Back in chapter 8, we saw there's nothing magical, Paul says, about a physical idol. It's nothing. But our liberty should never compromise the conscience of another believer. And that needs to be what's in our mind in chapter 9, verses 1 to 23. Paul gave the example of sacrificing any of our liberties that are necessary for evangelistic effectiveness, and that that demonstrates putting the gospel first in life, and that Paul had built his entire ministry around that, which he then gave us an example of in metaphor in verses 24 to 27 of chapter 9, that we, have, we should have the mindset of an athlete who's not only concerned about whether or not he's breaking any rule in the sport, he's most concerned about, am I winning Am I running to win? Paul warned us in the beginning of this chapter, chapter 10 in verses 1 through 12, that the example of Israel shows us that those who want to simply place their confidence in their spiritual privileges and liberties can still fall under judgment when they forget what those liberties are for. And then in 13 to 22, we saw that communion and idol sacrifices demonstrate that partaking of things like food can mean a lot more than simply partaking of food. It can be a sharing in the body and blood of Jesus. It can be a sharing in the demonic realm. And so with all of that as background, Paul is now ready to lay down one last flagstone here on this trail to walk them to their final conclusion. And that is found in verse 24, a verse that's often been pointed out as a foundational flagstone of Christian ethics when Paul says this, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. This principle is given here as just a basic principle for how we approach life. And Paul's saying this principle is not compatible with your understanding of all things are lawful. He says you're, you have a selfish mindset and how you're living out the Christian life. And, and that's incompatible with the path a Christian is to walk. We are to be marked as those who are others-focused. That We understand our, our lives are not for ourselves. And that's, that's kind of a backwards way of thinking. Even, even in our world, sometimes you see this, this kind of twist on that, where of course we want to be focused on other people, which is why I need to focus on me so much. Because if I haven't filled myself up, if I'm not satisfied and happy and fulfilled, well then, how can I be a blessing to other people? And you know what? I'm not sure I'm ever going to finish the getting me in place part. I'm not sure if I'll ever have the bandwidth to move beyond that. Paul says, no, we, we're not seeking our own good. But we're seeking the good of those that God has put around us. And that's a message that he lays out here in 1 Corinthians. It's a message he lays out in his letter to the Romans. It's a letter, it's laid out in his letter to the church in Philippi. Over and over he is connecting how do Christians function in difficult circumstances to this idea. Well, you start by saying, how do I serve other people first? In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, which we'll get to in a bit, he even connects this principle to what love itself looks like. A life of love is a life that is others' Focused, we're seeking the good of others. 
And so if that's true, then can you eat the meat? Right? Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. Just tell me the answer, Paul. Okay. Now you're ready for the answer. When can you eat the meat? Look at verse 25. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. And so he gives us a couple scenarios here to help them answer this question. The first scenario is you're going to the meat market and boom, discount steak, 50% off today only. What can you do? And Paul says, here's the principle. If the meat is being offered as just meat, then you can eat. If the meat is being offered just as meat, then you can eat. Don't, and then notice, don't make it a further moral issue to avoid further moral confusion. Don't ask questions. Don't get into the history of the steak. If it's being presented as meat, you can eat. He gives this principle from Psalm 24, verse 1. If you see a piece of meat, regardless of what anybody in the past thought about that meat, whose is it? The Lord's, right? It's the Lord's. Why? Because everything is the Lord's. Even those things on this earth that we say, well, this was dedicated to this false idol. God's like, I never ratified that. Still mine. Everything is God's. And so Paul says, look, if you see something and it's being presented just as the thing that it is, you can enjoy it because it's God's. You can enjoy it as a gift from him. But notice that, that last phrase where he said, for conscience sake, because this is what's going to create the full package. They can come up and they can say, oh, that's, that's a piece of meat. looks like it's tasty. looks like it's on sale. It just says steak. I can buy that. But maybe, maybe the reason it's on sale is because it was offered to an idol. Should I ask? Should I clarify? And Paul says, no, don't. When it comes to certain matters like food, the Christian has freedom. We have freedom when it comes to food. We don't have freedom when it comes to idolatry. So Paul says, if what you're being presented with is food, treat it like food. If what you're being presented with is idolatry, treat it like idolatry. And don't make your life more complicated than it needs to be. And, and you're like, yeah, that would be a silly thing to do. But we do this today, don't we? Right? You can imagine somebody going to a little restaurant. <clears throat> Excuse me. Is this chicken? Yes. That's chicken. Is this free-range chicken? Is this free-range chicken that has had no growth hormones? Is this hormone-free, free-range, ethically sourced, anti-colonialist, humanely butchered, environmentally conscious chicken? Right? Like, we'd still do this. Our culture comes in and they like to ask questions for conscience sake because they want to make everything they're doing always have to be a moral issue. And Paul's saying, we actually don't have to do that. If it's just an item on the menu, order it and eat it. And don't ask questions. Is this chicken? Great. That's what I'm looking for. I'll take two of those. The second scenario he gives us is dinner at an unbeliever's house. 
If you're invited by an unbeliever and you want to go, he says, if they put dinner on the table in front of you, enjoy it. And it's the same principle here. If the meat is offered as just meat, then you can eat. Don't make it a further moral issue to avoid further moral confusion. If it's presented as dinner, enjoy it as dinner. That's when you can eat, Paul says. But then he goes on to tell us when we can't eat. And that's in verse 28. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. And so here you've got Paul saying, regardless of the scenario, whether you're in the market, whether you're in a person's house, wherever you happen to be, you're presented with this beautiful ribeye and the person presenting it to you says, hey, this piece of meat was freshly offered to the great Poseidon this very afternoon. And Paul says, here's the principle. If the meat is made a moral symbol, respond with moral clarity. If the meat has been made a moral symbol, respond to the symbol with moral clarity. There's a lot of debate about who exactly this question asker is in this passage. Is, is this a person who's the host of a meal or somebody in the market or somebody who's just a, a fellow guest at some meal? And, and there's questions about their motives. Is this a person who's sort of like testing the Christian to say, hey, are you still going to be you know, Corinthian enough to fit in? You still going to partake of our, our cultural customs? Or is it somebody who perhaps still associates Christianity with Judaism and knows how fussy Judaism is about what you're allowed to eat? And they're like, oh no, I bet they don't know that that's actually a pig and that it was offered to a pagan god. I better warn them. Hey, did you know that that's actually sacrificed to idols? I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters who's asking this question. I don't think it matters what their motive is because the principle that applies is the same. As soon as something is presented to you, not just as the thing, but is being presented to you as what the thing represents, then you now must participate or refuse to participate on the basis of the meaning and not the thing. Right, so the Corinthians wanted to say, meat is meat is meat is meat, so it doesn't ever matter. And Paul says, no. Sometimes cup and bread is just cup and bread and sometimes it's communion. And it's actually a significant difference. Sometimes steak is steak. And sometimes steak is idolatry. And it's a significant difference. When you've been presented with idolatry, say no. You can run into this kind of scenario even in our culture today. Imagine walking into, I don't know, a mermaid-themed coffee shop because mermaids would love hot, bitter beverages under the sea, right? So you ask for your shot of espresso, maybe a little bit of foam on top, and the permanently smiling barista disappears behind that large coffee maker and then reappears at the end of the counter with your beverage. Have a nice day. Thank you, you too. Business concluded. You're good to go. Other than coffee being a foul beverage, in my opinion, there's nothing wrong taking place here. But now imagine you return the next day for your daily dose and repeat the process. This time, as the cup is handed to you, you notice there's a bright rainbow lid, and the barista, still smiling, says cheerfully, did you know that this month every cup we serve is dedicated to the diversity of love that we all celebrate? Have a great day. Right? She's not giving you a cup of coffee anymore, is she? That's not what it represents anymore. 
Now all of a sudden you're in a very different situation. In the cup at the end of the counter is the exact same thing you ordered yesterday with an appropriately clear conscience, but today is now different. Now that cup is a symbol of worship. And you sharing in that cup is a sharing in the object of its worship. I'm sorry, I'm afraid I can't celebrate that with you. Therefore, I can't accept this beverage, but have a nice day. Still pay for it, but don't partake in it. This is where it's going to start getting rough on us. Because we're going to start running into this more and more and more. Have you noticed? It's become an odd transition even in the last short lifespan I've been alive, right? Where companies went from stay out of politics and religion, right? Just sell the product. Why? Because they understand this verse better than we do sometimes. They understand if I don't make things a moral issue, everybody can buy my thing. Everybody will buy my thing if I don't make it a moral issue. But all of a sudden, in this last generation, everything has to be made a moral issue. And more and more corporations are building their corporate identities around a moral statement. They're building their products around moral posturing. And increasingly, everywhere you turn, things are taking on symbolic significance. And that means as a Christian, it's going to start getting hard. And, and the purpose this morning is not to say, so get out your tape measures, let's all measure every single company, every single product, every single possibility, and figure out exactly if it measures and fits into the guidelines. The purpose this morning is to say, we as Christians need to clearly understand the principles we need to take with us in confronting all of these questions in confronting all of these issues and be faithful to those principles. And there may be situations where some of you take a stand here and others of you take a stand there. And that can be okay. There's room for, for freedom and charity and differences of opinion on exactly where we draw the lines, but we all need to be drawing with the same principles. And it's hard. And so here's some things we want to keep in mind Then a couple lessons here is don't make an issue where there isn't one. Don't make an issue where there isn't one. Paul says, look, our goal as Christians is not to run around trying to provoke the world into always revealing their moral bankruptcy. And sometimes you see this in in what I think are probably ill-conceived boycott attempts where where our company's made a foolish decision or a particular product was bad. And and so now Christians say, well, we we need to boycott all of this. Man, did you see what did you see what Twitter allowed? I need to jump on Facebook right now and let everybody know I'm going to boycott Twitter because they're an evil corporation with sinful desires. I'll ask Mark Zuckerberg to help spread that message for me. <laughs> right? If you start trying to boycott everything on this planet that is not currently glorifying God, good luck. You will starve to death. Right? That, that is not what God has called us to do, in fact. Jesus taught us that. Paul taught us that. Our goal is not that we would be pulled out of this world. We're not trying to cloister and build a separate civilization free from all of the effects of the fall. That's not possible. And so there's lots of times when it isn't the issue, so we don't want to make it the issue. When all they're selling you is a hot dog for $1.50, and you can be thankful that the hot dog is still a dollar fifty. Don't make an issue where there isn't one. 
As Christians, we are not trying to be needlessly provocative. But secondly, don't miss an issue where there is one. Don't miss an issue where there is one. Once the world says, guess what? This now represents my idol. Then we can't say, well, I know better. And I really want it. Once the world has said, hey, will you participate in my false worship? The Christian has to say, no, no, I won't. Well, that's rude. That's offensive. That's bigoted. That's narrow-minded. It's unpatriotic. It's uncommunal. Our allegiances have to be clear. Once the world has made something an issue, then we have to make it an issue too. And then thirdly, sort of just the, the principle that ties those two together, our lives should demonstrate consistent principles. Consistent principles. And this is different than necessarily demonstrating consistent law. And what I mean by that is the Corinthians, I think, kind of wanted Paul to say either you can always eat the meat or you can never eat the meat, right? That's what they wanted, I think, Paul to say. You can always eat the meat or you can never eat the meat. Give us the rule, Paul. Give us, give us the law. And Paul says, no, your life should be marked not by a consistent rule. It should be marked by a consistent principle. And that principle means that you can have dinner here and you can't have dinner there. And it's actually up to you to make that determination on a case-by-case basis. That's harder because you have to think, right? You ever notice that? Like one of the worst things that anybody can ever tell you is, well, do what you want to do. No, just tell me the answer. And God often says, no, I'm going to give you the fences and I'm going to give you the principle and then I want you to go and I want you to obey me. Our lives should demonstrate consistent principles. And if somebody comes back to you and says, hey, I saw you last Friday at so-and-so's house, you were eating his steak. And then I was there last night and you were at this person's house and you wouldn't eat their steak, you hypocrite. If you're living your life by laws, you are a hypocrite because you were violating a law on one end or the other, right? If you're living your life on principles, then you now have a gospel opportunity to say, hey, you're very observant. You notice that. Let me explain to you why. Because over here we had dinner, and over here we had idolatry, and I had to pick. I'm not a hypocrite. I'm guiding my life by a principle. Maybe some of you this morning are thinking this is getting very needlessly complicated again because I'm actually mature and strong enough to eat steak whenever I want. My conscience is clear no matter what they call it. So what if I just do that, Paul? And Paul hears that thought, and he has an answer for that thought, and his answer builds into one of the most famous verses in the Bible. And the most important principle of all that must govern our lives in every action that we take. And that is seen there in verses 29 to 31. The glory of God is our controlling consideration. Verse 29, Paul says, I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Paul emphasizes, I think, a very important point here. This isn't about whether or not you are mature enough to handle it. Right? That's something I think most of us have tried in our youth. Like, I can handle it. Right? Paul isn't, 
isn't interested in whether or not you think you're mature enough to handle it when it comes to partaking of your Christian liberties. And you can sort of hear in the background, as Paul's been saying these things, the all things are lawful crowd warming up again. And Paul's reminding the Corinthians, no, we are living for those around us, for their conscience. That's our goal, that our lives would bring moral clarity to the people around us, that they would see in our lives that, yes, I am free in Christ, but I will never allow anything to cast a shadow on His glory. We want people to see that clarity in us. We're living for those around us in their conscience, but we're not living under those around us in their judgment. And that's a distinction. Because some who are living lives of selfish indulgence... We're judging Paul for being too restrictive with his, own, with his own liberties. And others, however, who were living lives of legalism, especially when it came to the Old Testament law, they were judging Paul because he was being too liberal with his freedoms. And Paul wants to make sure that he hits them briefly as well. Within the sphere of God's permitted will, and that's an important distinction, inside the fences of God's commands, within the sphere of God's permitted will, who are we? to take the convictions of our conscience and judge another believer with them. Paul says we don't have the right to do that. If one believer still can't eat pork with a clear conscience, he's free not to eat pork. The Bible doesn't say he has to. But he doesn't have the right to come to Paul as he's praying and offering thanks to God before tucking into his bacon cheeseburger and say, you sinner. Because Paul isn't judged by that believer's preference. Paul essentially is trying to get the attention of two people. And there are two people we still sometimes run into in the church today. I want to imagine two women having a heated exchange, all right? One is saying, my conscience would never allow me to wear pants, so you should stop being so offensive to me by wearing them. And the other responds, I've got freedom in Christ to wear pants, and so I'll wear them no matter what you or anyone else thinks. And Paul's saying, both of you, eyes up front, you stop judging your sister in Christ. You have no right to do so if she is doing something God has not forbidden. And you stop using your freedom selfishly as though God gave us freedom for ourselves. You're both wrong. Okay, if it isn't the law, if it's not my personal preference or my rights that should determine what I do, then what should be that determining, controlling consideration of the Christian? And that's when Paul gives us verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Paul now gives us is one of these most famous exhortations in all of Scripture. And many here, I bet, have had this verse memorized since childhood. And it deserves that status. It's one of those principles of life that is so broadly applicable that it literally encompasses every single thing you will ever do. Without exception, every, every activity we could possibly undertake, whether that's issues of food and drink, such as the Corinthians were debating, to everything else, Sometimes I like to ask our youth, do you know how to brush your teeth to the glory of God? Because this verse says that it applies. What does that mean then, to glorify God? 
Well, it has to do with starting to understand what his glory is in the first place. When we talk about God being glorious, what do we mean? It's one of those words we, we love to use and sometimes we forget to define. The glory of God in its simplest form in the scripture refers to two different realities. One is the excellencies of his perfections and the other is the majesty that usually comes with him. The excellencies of his perfections and the, the majesty that surrounds his presence. That is God's glory. It's what makes him more. It's what makes him better. It's what makes him awesome. Dare I even say awful. That's his glory. So what does it mean then to live to the glory of God? I think you can boil that down simply to say that means living as though you believe God is who he is. Actually living as though you believe that's who God is. Which means then I'm impressed by what God's impressed with and I am not impressed by what God is not impressed with. It means I, I will love what a glorious God loves and I will hate what a glorious God hates. I will be grateful for what a God like that gives, and I will despise anything that would seek to be a cheap substitute for his gifts. I will do what he has called me to do, and I will not do anything that would reflect poorly on him. I will say what I ought to say that is true according to who he is, and I will not ever let something leave my lips that would be a lie against his truth. It does actually apply to everything, including brushing our teeth. I realize it's not just about my teeth. But is this a stewardship? And is this an act of gratitude? And is this being done by a creature who's conscious of a God who's watching him brush his teeth? All of life, as the Puritans in America used to say, is lived coram Deo, before the face of God. He's watching everything. And therefore, everything is being enacted in his presence. Everything is either true worship or false worship. Everything is an expression of our consciousness that we are living our lives before God and we love him, or it's a betrayal of that. We don't want to become dualists where we just sort of portion off this part of my life will be the spiritual part of my life. And this part of my life is the doesn't matter part of my life. Where does my job go? Where does my family go? Where does my hobby go? All of it goes in the bucket of worship. All of it goes in to either an act of true worship or an act of false worship. That's Paul's point. And so for the Corinthians, they were like, can I eat the meat? And Paul says, that's a worship question. That's a worship question. You're trying to answer it like it's a selfish question. Let's boil this down. A few principles here. They're wordy. I apologize so if you want to catch the gist. First is this. If we put our convictions first, we will become judgmental. If we try to live our lives all by the rules and the laws, if we're always busting out our tape measure, we will most likely find ourselves condemning other believers for that for which they give thanks. Does that mean that convictions are bad? No. We must be convictional. For every Christian, they do need to decide Will I wear pants or not? But our convictions aren't first. That is not the primary decision-making idea for the Christian. And if our convictions are first, we tend towards legalism and we become judgmental. If we put our rights first, 
If we put our rights first, we, be, we will become an obstacle to the gospel because we will be causing offense to those very people that we should be proclaiming good news to because we're insisting on gratifying ourselves instead of serving them. Is it wrong to have rights and to be able to use them? No, but they don't come first. Here's an interesting one. If you put others first, you will compromise the gospel. If our chief concern is simply, what do they think about me? What do they want? What is, what is their preference? Then we will run around compromising to meet their expectations and not God's. But if we put the glory of God first, we will have a sure guide in every circumstance. One principle to live by in every circumstance I love putting this verse right up next to the teaching of Jesus. If you're trying to figure out, how do I get through life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do everything for the glory of God. You'll be fine. Right? You, can, you can boil the Bible down to that. I want to be a log keeper. Good. Love God. Love others. I want to make the right decisions in every situation and relationship I'm in. Great. Try to glorify God. All the rest of Scripture is an exposition of the foundation for how we can do that in Christ and for what that looks like in different situations and for what the resulting goal of that will be at the end of time. But that's the heart of the Christian life. And if you're still trying to figure out where to get started, Paul has one last bit of advice as we wrap things up this morning, and that's in verse 32 down to the first verse of chapter 11. Practical growth in these things involves imitating the mature. Practical growth involves imitating the mature. Paul says, Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. With that principle of glory in place, Paul's ready to give this last lesson in practical application. How can we seek to glorify God in all things, particularly in our dealings with others? And Paul says, well, we've already talked about you're supposed to serve other people. It's not selfish. You're trying to have your eyes on other people by not giving needless offense, whether that's to Jews, needless offense to Greeks, needless offense to the church of God. Live your life, focus on other people in such a way that you're constantly compromising your freedoms rather than compromising your gospel opportunities. So serve other people by seeking their profit, not your own, and have a gospel agenda. Have a gospel agenda. We've discussed this before, but the glory of God has never, is never, will never be more clearly on display than it is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son in the power of the Holy Spirit laying down His life as a substitutionary atonement for sin and obedience to the Father who raised Him from the dead. More of God's character, more of God's power, more of God's purposes has never been out in the daylight for us to see and appreciate than in that moment, in that work of God. And so if we want to see God most glorified, then we want to see the gospel where that glory is on display perceived, believed, and beloved in every corner of this planet. And that takes something that can be abstract, glorifying God, and makes it much more specific. 
because I can, I can now ask specifically in every interaction that I'm having with people, how can I move this in a direction that makes the gospel more perceived, believed, and beloved? How do you, how do, you do that? Paul says, well, just copy me. Just copy me. Imitate me. This comes up all the time in our lives, right? Whether it's parents raising their children, whether it's coaches with coaching staff at your place of employment, you've probably run across this. You're reading all the manuals. You're reading all the books. You're like, I'm not quite sure I'm visualizing it. And at some point they just say, here, just watch me and do what I do. Right? How many of you have learned more in a few hours of watching and imitating than you did in months of preparation and reading? The ability to imitate is so powerful. We see this everywhere. What we do, in, in marriages, this is fascinating because you can read all the marriage books and yet when you go into your marriage, all of your instincts will be what you saw your parents do or not do. Right? Those will be all your instincts and you'll either be copying them and living them out or you'll be constantly thinking, no, it's not supposed to look like that. I'm supposed to do it differently. But we imitate. We're imitators. That's who we are. You don't have to know everything to be imitatable. Paul wasn't perfect. No human leader has ever been perfect. But is there not something that God has done in your life that looks like Jesus in a way that somebody else can see and can copy and can become more like Jesus in that process? We went to one of our kids' uh, soccer games yesterday, and the referee came over to the sideline, and he, and he asked this question, who knows a lot about soccer? He's looking at his young, young kid, who was the ref. He, who knows a lot about soccer? And like, all of us were like, nope. Finally, one of the dads is like, well, what do you actually need? I need a line judge. I can do that, he says. And he was a good line judge. Right. What, what, he, what the ref needed and was calling for was not actually somebody who was like Pele. Right? What he needed was somebody who knew more about soccer than the little kids on the field and could help them to play their game. And I think almost all of us on the sideline could have done that. Sometimes I think in the church we think that what we have to be is some kind of spiritual superstar before we can be used in the life of another people. And, and we don't. You just have to be following Christ and trying to glorify him in some way that looks more like Jesus than somebody who's trying to figure out how to do it. We all have that opportunity. We all have indeed that burden of responsibility to desire to imitate Christ in such a way that others could imitate Christ by imitating us. Our last lessons this morning are these. In every aspect of our lives, consider God's glory first. In every interaction of our lives, cultivate gospel intentionality. You're welcome, Caleb. And copy good examples. Be a good example. Find a good example. You don't have to invent the wheel here. Find people who look like Jesus and do what they do. Be a person who looks like Jesus and come along somebody else and say, can I show you what God showed me? You may, at some point in your spiritual journey, outgrow some of your earthly mentors. You may outlive some of your earthly mentors. 
but we will always be able to look at and directly imitate our Savior, Jesus Christ, which is where Paul ultimately had his eyes fixed. Paul's not holding himself up here as independently amazing, but as someone being constantly molded into the image of the Savior. And that brings us to our time around the Lord's table this morning. Prepare your elements as we consider this thought. When Paul says he's an imitator of Christ, he's not just imitating the character of his Savior, he's imitating the conduct of his Savior. Because in a way that we never could, no matter how sacrificial our lives are in the service of the gospel, Jesus emptied himself of the free exercise of all of his divine rights that he might become one of us so that he might serve rather than be served. If there's anybody who would ever be free from judgment over his use of his freedoms, it would be God. But was there anybody who self-limited his freedoms more than our Savior? And what was the controlling consideration of our Savior in these things? I think you can hear it in John chapter 12 when Jesus said this, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, what? Glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. If he laid down his very body and blood, that the good news may come to sinners and glory may be given to the Father, then can we expect any less if we would be identified with him? We should not dilute this symbol by also participating in that which is associated with idols. And we should not make this symbol a source of hypocrisy by refusing to imitate our Savior's example. And so as the music team comes forward, let me offer a word of prayer and then we will partake. Or let's see, do we, there they are, all right. And then we have one chorus to close on. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have not called us to this life of giving you glory in our own flesh because then it would be impossible but even as you have made us your own children, not by our own merits or through our own strength, but through the work of your Son, even so you are sanctifying us and giving us the grace by which we can live a life glorifying you, not according to our own strength, but through your Spirit. And so this morning as we mark again and remember again the death of Jesus Christ for us, we do so in identity acknowledging that we are now yours and that you have made us new and we do so also, Lord, in dependence, declaring that we still are desperately in need of you if we are to walk before you as that which we have now been made. And so accept from us, Lord, this symbol of our unity with one another and with your Son. And we pray this in his name. Amen.